Book sixteen, chapters one through eight of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book sixteen. Chapter one. It is difficult to discover from Scripture whether, after the deluge, traces of the holy city are continuous, or are so interrupted by intervening seasons of godlessness, that not a single worshipper of the one true God was found among men. Because from Noah, who, with his wife, three sons, and as many daughters-in-law, achieved deliverance in the ark from the destruction of the deluge down to Abraham, we do not find in the canonical books that the piety of any one is celebrated by express divine testimony, unless it be in the case of Noah, who commends with a prophetic benediction his two sons Shem and Japheth, while he beheld and foresaw what was long afterwards to happen. It was also by this prophetic spirit that when his middle son, that is, the son who was younger than the first and older than the last-born, had sinned against him, he cursed him not in his own person, but in his sons, his own grandsons, in the words, Cursed be the lad Canaan, a servant shall he be unto his brethren. Now Canaan was born of Ham, who, so far from covering his sleeping father's nakedness, had divulged it. For the same reason also he subjoins the blessing on his two other sons, the oldest and youngest, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall gladden Japheth, and he shall dwell in the houses of Shem. And so too the planting of the vine by Noah, and his intoxication by its fruit, and his nakedness while he slept, and the other things done at that time, and recorded, are all of them pregnant with prophetic meanings, and veiled in mysteries. CHAPTER Two. The things which then were hidden are now sufficiently revealed by the actual events which have followed. For who can carefully and intelligently consider these things without recognizing them accomplished in Christ? Shem, of whom Christ was born in the flesh, means named. And what is of greater name than Christ, the fragrance of whose name is now everywhere perceived, so that even prophecy sings of it beforehand, comparing it in the Song of Songs to ointment poured forth? Is it not also in the houses of Christ, that is, in the churches, that the enlargement of the nations dwells? For Japheth means enlargement, and Ham, that is, Hot, who was the middle son of Noah, and, as it were, separated himself from both, and remained between them, neither belonging to the firstfruits of Israel, nor to the fullness of the Gentiles, what does he signify but the tribe of heretics, hot with the spirit, not of patience, but of impatience, with which the breasts of heretics are wont to blaze, and with which they disturb the peace of the saints? But even the heretics yield an advantage to those that make proficiency, according to the apostles' saying, There must also be heresies, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Whence, too, it is elsewhere said, The son that receives instruction will be wise, and he uses the foolish as his servant. For while the hot restlessness of heretics stirs questions about many articles of the Catholic faith, the necessity of defending them forces us both to investigate them more accurately, to understand them more clearly, and to proclaim them more earnestly. And the question mooted by an adversary becomes the occasion of instruction. 
However, not only those who are openly separated from the church, but also all who glory in the Christian name, and at the same time lead abandoned lives, may without absurdity seem to be figured by Noah's middle son. For the passion of Christ, which was signified by that man's nakedness, is at once proclaimed by their profession, and dishonoured by their wicked conduct. Of such, therefore, it has been said, By their fruits ye shall know them. And therefore was Ham cursed in his son, he being, as it were, his fruit. So, too, this son of his, Canaan, is fitly interpreted their movement, which is nothing else than their work. But Shem and Japheth, that is to say, the circumcision and uncircumcision, or, as the apostle otherwise calls them, the Jews and Greeks, but called and justified, having somehow discovered the nakedness of their father, which signifies the Saviour's passion, took a garment and laid it upon their backs, and entered backwards and covered their father's nakedness, without their seeing what their reverence hid. For we both honour the passion of Christ as accomplished for us, and we hate the crime of the Jews who crucified him. The garment signifies the sacrament, their backs the memory of things past, for the church celebrates the passion of Christ as already accomplished, and no longer to be looked forward to, now that Japheth already dwells in the habitations of Shem, and their wicked brother between them. But the wicked brother is, in the person of his son, that is his work, the boy or slave of his good brothers, when good men make a skilful use of bad men, either for the exercise of their patience, or for their advancement in wisdom. For the apostle testifies that there are some who preach Christ from no pure motives, but, says he, whether in pretense or in truth Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For it is Christ himself who planted the vine of which the prophet says, The vine of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And he drinks of its wine, whether we thus understand that cup of which he says, Can ye drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, by which he obviously means his passion. Or, as wine is the fruit of the vine, we may prefer to understand that from this vine, that is to say, from the race of Israel, he has assumed flesh and blood, that he might suffer. And he was drunken, that is, he suffered, and was naked, that is, his weakness appeared in his suffering, as the apostle says, though he was crucified through weakness. Wherefore the same apostle says, The weakness of God is stronger than men, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And when to the expression, He was naked, Scripture adds, in His house, it elegantly intimates that Jesus was to suffer the cross and death at the hands of His own household, His own kith and kin, the Jews. This passion of Christ is only externally and verbally professed by the reprobate, for what they profess they do not understand. But the elect hold in the inner man this so great mystery, and honour inwardly in the heart this weakness and foolishness of God. And of this there is a figure in Ham going out to proclaim his father's nakedness, while Shem and Japheth, to cover or honour it, went in, that is to say, did it inwardly. These secrets of divine scripture we investigate as well as we can. All will not accept our interpretation with equal confidence, but all hold it certain that these things were neither done nor recorded without some foreshadowing of future events, and that they are to be referred only to Christ and his church, which is the city of God, proclaimed from the very beginning of human history by figures which we now see everywhere accomplished. From the blessing of the two sons of Noah, and the cursing of the middle son, down to Abraham, or for more than a thousand years, there is, as I have 
have said no mention of any righteous persons who worshipped God. I do not therefore conclude that there were none, but it had been tedious to mention every one, and would have displayed historical accuracy rather than prophetic foresight. The object of the writer of these sacred books, or rather of the Spirit of God in him, is not only to record the past, but to depict the future, so far as it regards the city of God. For whatever is said of those who are not its citizens, is given either for her instruction, or as a foil to enhance her glory." Yet we are not to suppose that all that is recorded has some signification, but those things which have no signification of their own are interwoven for the sake of the things which are significant. It is only the ploughshare that cleaves the soil, but to effect this other parts of the plough are requisite. It is only the strings and harps and other musical instruments which produce melodious sounds, but that they may do so, there are other parts of the instrument which are not indeed struck by those who sing, but are connected with the strings which are struck, and produce musical notes. So in this prophetic history some things are narrated which have no significance, but are as it were the framework to which the significant things are attached. CHAPTER Three. We must therefore introduce into this work an explanation of the generations of the three sons of Noah, in so far as that may illustrate the progress in time of the two cities. Scripture first mentions that of the youngest son, who is called Japheth. He had eight sons, and by two of these sons seven grandchildren, three by one son, four by the other, in all fifteen descendants. Ham, Noah's middle son, had four sons, and by one of them five grandsons, and by one of these two great-grandsons, in all eleven. After enumerating these, Scripture returns to the first of the sons, and says, Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a giant on the earth. He was a giant hunter against the Lord God, wherefore they say, as Nimrod, the giant hunter against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Assur, and built Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezen between Nineveh and Kala. This was a great city. Now this Cush, father of the giant Nimrod, is the first named among the sons of Ham, to whom five sons and two grandsons are ascribed. But he either begat this giant after his grandsons were born, or, which is more credible, Scripture speaks of him separately on account of his eminence. For mention is also made of his kingdom, which began with that magnificent city Babylon, and the other places, whether cities or districts, mentioned along with it. But what is recorded of the land of Shinar, which belonged to Nimrod's kingdom, to wit that Assur went forth from it and built Nineveh, and the other cities mentioned with it, happened long after. But he takes occasion to speak of it here on account of the grandeur of the Assyrian kingdom, which was wonderfully extended by Ninus, son of Belus, and founder of the great city Nineveh, which was named after him, Nineveh from Ninus. But Assur, father of the Assyrian, was not one of the sons of Ham, Noah's middle son, but is found among the sons of Shem, his eldest son. Whence it appears that among Shem's offspring there arose men who afterwards took possession of that giant's kingdom, and, advancing from it, founded other cities, the first of which was called Nineveh, from Ninus. From him scripture returns to Ham's other son, Mizraim, and his sons are enumerated, not as seven individuals, but as seven nations. And from the sixth, as if from the sixth son, the race called the Philistines are said to have sprung, so that there are in all eight. 
Then it returns again to Canaan, in whose person Ham was cursed, and his eleven sons are named. Then the territories they occupied, and some of the cities are named. And thus, if we count sons and grandsons, there are thirty-one of Ham's descendants registered. It remains to mention the sons of Shem, Noah's eldest son, for to him this genealogical narrative gradually ascends from the youngest. But in the commencement of the record of Shem's sons there is an obscurity which calls for explanation, since it is closely connected with the object of our investigation. For we read, Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Heber, the brother of Japheth the elder, were children born. This is the order of the words, and to Shem was born Heber, even to himself, that is, to Shem himself was born Heber, and Shem is the father of all his children. We are intended to understand that Shem is the patriarch of all his posterity who were to be mentioned, whether sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, or descendants at any remove. For Shem did not beget Heber, who was indeed in the fifth generation from him. For Shem begat, among other sons, Arphaxad, Arphaxad begat Canaan, Canaan begat Salah, Salah begat Heber. And it was with good reason that he was named first among Shem's offspring, taking precedence even of his sons, though only a grandchild of the fifth generation. For from him, as tradition says, the Hebrews derived their name, though the other etymology which derives the name from Abraham, as if Abrahus, may possibly be correct. But there can be little doubt that the former is the right etymology, and that they were called after Heber, Heberus, and then, dropping a letter, Hebrews, and so was their language called Hebrew, which was spoken by none but the people of Israel, among whom was the city of God, mysteriously prefigured in all the people, and truly present in the saints. Six of Shem's sons, then, are first named, then four grandsons born to one of these sons, then it mentions another son of Shem, who begat a grandson, and his son, again, or Shem's great-grandson, was Heber. And Heber begat two sons, and called the one Peleg, which means dividing, and Scripture subjoins the reason of this name, saying, For in his days was the earth divided. What this means will afterwards appear. Heber's other son begat twelve sons, consequently all Shem's descendants are twenty-seven. The total number of the progeny of the three sons of Noah is seventy-three, fifteen by Japheth, thirty-one by Ham, twenty-seven by Shem. Then Scripture adds, These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. And so of the whole number, These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the isles of the nations dispersed through the earth after the flood. From which we gather that the seventy-three, or rather, as I shall presently show, seventy-two, were not individuals, but nations. For in a former passage, when the sons of Japheth were enumerated, it is said in conclusion, By these were the isles of the nations divided in their lands, every one after his language, in their tribes, and in their nations. But nations are expressly mentioned among the sons of Ham, as I showed above. Mizraim begat those who were called Ludim, and so also of the other seven nations. And after enumerating all of them, it concludes, These are the sons of Ham, in their families, according to their languages, in their territories, and in their nations. The reason, then, why the children of several of them are not mentioned, is that they belonged by birth to other nations, and did not themselves become nations. 
why else is it that though eight sons are reckoned to japheth the sons of only two of these are mentioned and though four are reckoned to ham only three are spoken of as having sons and though six are reckoned to shem the descendants of only two of these are traced did the rest remain childless we cannot suppose so but they did not produce nations so great as to warrant their being mentioned but were absorbed in the nations to which they belonged by birth chapter four but though these nations are said to have been dispersed according to their languages yet the narrator recurs to that time when all had but one language and explains how it came to pass that a diversity of languages was introduced the whole earth he says was of one lip and all had one speech and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of shinar and dwelt there and they said one to another come and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had bricks for stone and slime for mortar and they said come and let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top shall reach the sky and let us make us a name before we be scattered abroad on the face of all the earth and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord God said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Come, and let us go down and confound there their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And God scattered them thence on the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city and the tower. Therefore the name of it is called Confusion, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and the Lord God scattered them thence on the face of all the earth. This city, which was called Confusion, is the same as Babylon, whose wonderful construction Gentile history also notices. For Babylon means Confusion. Whence we conclude that the giant Nimrod was its founder, as had been hinted a little before, where Scripture, in speaking of him, says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, that is, Babylon had a supremacy over the other cities as the metropolis and royal residence, although it did not rise to the grand dimensions designed by its proud and impious founder. The plan was to make it so high that it should reach the sky, whether this was meant of one tower which they intended to build higher than the others, or of all the towers which might be signified by the singular number, as we speak of the soldier, meaning the army, and of the frog or the locust, when we refer to the whole multitude of frogs and locusts in the plagues with which Moses smote the Egyptians but what did these vain and presumptuous men intend how did they expect to raise this lofty mass against god when they had built it above all the mountains and clouds of the earth's atmosphere what injury could any spiritual or material elevation do to god the safe and true way to heaven is made by humility which lifts up the heart to the lord not against him as this giant is said to have been a hunter against the lord this has been misunderstood by some through the ambiguity of the Greek word, and they have translated it not against the Lord, but before the Lord, for an antion means both before and against. In the psalm this word is rendered, Let us weep before the Lord our Maker. The same word occurs in the book of Job, where it is written, Thou hast broken into fury against the Lord. And so this giant is to be recognized as a hunter against the Lord. And what is meant by the term hunter but deceiver, oppressor, and destroyer of the animals of the earth? 
He and his people, therefore, erected this tower against the Lord, and so gave expression to their impious pride, and justly was their wicked intention punished by God, even though it was unsuccessful. But what was the nature of the punishment? As the tongue is the instrument of domination, in it pride was punished, so that man who would not understand God when he issued his commands should be misunderstood when he himself gave orders. Thus was that conspiracy disbanded, for each man retired from those he could not understand, and associated with those whose speech was intelligible, and the nations were divided according to their languages, and scattered over the earth as seemed good to God, who accomplished this in ways hidden from and incomprehensible to us. CHAPTER five. We read, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. It was not the sons of God, but that society which lived in a merely human way, and which we call the earthly city. God, who is always holy everywhere, does not move locally, but he is said to descend when he does anything in the earth out of the usual course, which, as it were, makes his presence felt. And in the same way he does not by seeing learn some new thing, for he cannot ever be ignorant of anything, but he is said to see and recognize in time that which he causes others to see and recognize. And therefore that city was not previously being seen as God made it be seen when he showed how offensive it was to him. We might indeed interpret God's descending to the city of the descent of his angels, in whom he dwells, so that the following words, And the Lord God said, Behold, they are all one race, and of one language, and also what follows, Come, and let us go down, and confound their speech, are a recapitulation, explaining how the previously intimated descent of the Lord was accomplished. For if he had already gone down, why does he say, Come, and let us go down, and confound, words which seem to be addressed to the angels, and to intimate that he who was in the angels descended in their descent. And the words most appropriately are, not, Go ye down and confound, but let us confound their speech, showing that he so works by his servants, that they are themselves also fellow laborers with God, as the apostle says, For we are fellow laborers with God. CHAPTER six. We might have supposed that the words uttered at the creation of man, let us, and not let me, make man, were addressed to the angels, had he not added in our image. But as we cannot believe that man was made in the image of angels, or that the image of God is the same as that of angels, it is proper to refer this expression to the plurality of the Trinity. And yet this Trinity, being one God, even after saying, let us make, goes on to say, and God made man in his image and not God's made, or in their image. And were there any difficulty in applying to the angels the words, Come, and let us go down, and confound their speech, we might refer the plural to the Trinity, as if the Father were addressing the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it rather belongs to the angels to approach God by holy movements, that is, by pious thoughts, and thereby to avail themselves of the unchangeable truth which rules in the court of heaven as their eternal law. For they are not themselves the truth, but partaking in the creative truth, they are moved towards it as the fountain of life, that what they have not in themselves they may obtain in it. And this movement of theirs is steady, for they never go back from what they have reached. 
and to these angels God does not speak as we speak to one another, or to God, or to angels, or as the angels speak to us, or as God speaks to us through them. He speaks to them in an ineffable manner of his own, and that which he says is conveyed to us in a manner suited to our capacity. For the speaking of God antecedent and superior to all his works is the immutable reason of his work. It has no noisy and passing sound, but an energy eternally abiding and producing results in time. Thus he speaks to the holy angels, but to us who are far off he speaks otherwise. When, however, we hear with the inner ear some part of the speech of God, we approximate to the angels. But in this work I need not labor to give an account of the ways in which God speaks. For either the unchangeable truth speaks directly to the mind of the rational creature in some indescribable way, or speaks through the changeable creature, either presenting spiritual images to our spirit, or bodily voices to our bodily sense. The words, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do, are assuredly not meant as an affirmation, but as an interrogation, such as is used by persons threatening, as, for example, when Dido exclaims, They will not take arms and pursue? We are to understand the words as if it had been said, Shall nothing be restrained from them which they have imagined to do? From these three men, therefore, the three sons of Noah, we mean seventy-three, or rather, as the catalogue will show, seventy-two nations and as many languages, were dispersed over the earth, and as they increased, they filled even the islands. But the nations multiplied much more than the languages. For even in Africa we know several barbarous nations which have but one language. And who can doubt that as the human race increased, men contrived to pass to the islands in ships? Chapter 7. There is a question raised about all those kinds of beasts which are not domesticated, nor are produced like frogs from the earth, but are propagated by male and female parents, such as wolves and animals of that kind. And it is asked how they could be found in the islands after the deluge, in which all the animals not in the ark perished, unless the breed was restored from those which were preserved in pairs in the ark. It might indeed be said that they crossed the islands by swimming, but this could only be true of those very near the mainland, whereas there are some so distant that we fancy no animal could swim to them. But if men caught them and took them across with themselves, and thus propagated these breeds in their new abodes, this would not imply an incredible fondness for the chase. At the same time, it cannot be denied that by the intervention of angels they might be transferred by God's order or permission. If, however, they were produced out of the earth, as at their first creation, when God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature, this makes it more evident that all kinds of animals were preserved in the ark, not so much for the sake of renewing the stock, as of prefiguring the various nations which were to be saved in the church. This, I say, is more evident if the earth brought forth many animals and islands to which they could not cross over. CHAPTER Eight. It is also asked whether we are to believe that certain monstrous races of men, spoken of in secular history, have sprung from Noah's sons, or rather, I should say, from that one man from whom they themselves were descended. For it is reported that some have one eye in the middle of the forehead, some feet turned backwards from the heel, some a double sex, the right breast like a man, the left like a woman, and that they alternately beget and bring forth. 
others are said to have no mouth, and to breathe only through the nostrils, others are but a cubit high, and are therefore called by the Greeks pygmies. They say that in some places the women conceive in their fifth year, and do not live beyond their eighth. So too they tell of a race who have two feet, but only one leg, and are of marvellous swiftness, though they do not bend the knee. They are called Skyopides, because in the hot weather they lie down on their backs and shade themselves with their feet. Others are said to have no head, and their eyes and their shoulders, and other human or quasi-human races are depicted in mosaic in the harbour esplanade of Carthage, on the faith of histories of rarities. What shall I say of the Cynocephali, whose dog-like head and barking proclaim them beasts rather than men? But we are not bound to believe all we hear of these monstrosities. But whoever is anywhere born a man, that is, a rational mortal animal, no matter what unusual appearance he presents in colour, movement, sound, nor how peculiar he is in some power, part, or quality of his nature, no Christian can doubt that he springs from that one protoplast. We can distinguish the common human nature from that which is peculiar, and therefore wonderful. The same account which is given of monstrous births in individual cases can be given of monstrous races. For God, the creator of all, knows where and when each thing ought to be, or to have been created, because he sees the similarities and diversities which can contribute to the beauty of the whole. But he who cannot see the whole is offended by the deformity of the part, because he is blind to that which balances it, and to which it belongs. We know that men are born with more than four fingers on their hands or toes on their feet. This is a smaller matter. But far from us be the folly of supposing that the Creator mistook the number of a man's fingers, though we cannot account for the difference. And so in cases where the divergence from the rule is greater. He whose works no man justly finds fault with knows what he has done. At Hippodiaritis there is a man whose hands are crescent-shaped, and have only two fingers each, and his feet similarly formed. If there were a race like him, it would be added to the history of the curious and wonderful. Shall we therefore deny that this man is descended from that one man who was first created? As for the Androgeni, or Hermaphrodites, as they are called, though they are rare, yet from time to time there appears persons of sex so doubtful that it remains uncertain from which sex they take their name, though it is customary to give them a masculine name as the more worthy, for no one ever called them Hermaphrodituses. Some years ago, quite within my own memory, a man was born in the east, double in his upper but single in his lower half, having two heads, two chests, four hands, but one body and two feet like an ordinary man, and he lived so long that many had an opportunity of seeing him. But who could enumerate all the human births that have differed widely from their ascertained parents? As, therefore, no one will deny that these are all descended from that one man, so all the races which are reported to have diverged in bodily appearance from the usual course which nature generally or almost universally preserves, if they are embraced in that definition of man as rational and mortal animals, unquestionably trace their pedigree to that one first father of all. We are supposing these stories about various races who differ from one another and from us to be true, 
but possibly they are not for if we were not aware that apes and monkeys and sphinxes are not men but beasts those historians would possibly describe them as races of men and flaunt with impunity their false and vainglorious discoveries but supposing they are men of whom these marvels are recorded what if god has seen fit to create some races in this way that we might not suppose that the monstrous births which appear among ourselves are the failures of that wisdom whereby he fashions the human nature as we speak of the failure of a less perfect workman accordingly it ought not to seem absurd to us that as in individual races there are monstrous births so in the whole race there are monstrous races wherefore to conclude this question cautiously and guardedly either these things which have been told of some races have no existence at all or if they do exist they are not human races or if they are human they are descended from adam end of book sixteen chapters one through eight recording by darren l slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org